Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, December 6th, 2022. It's been 3,205 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 286 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess there is an extreme risk of continued terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure over the next week. Second, we maintain Russia will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed, or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Third, Our December 4th assessment in the Northeast Donetsk section that Russia has changed the tactics of its air campaign in Ukraine and is taking more risks was accurate and was confirmed by the commander of the ground forces of the armed forces of Ukraine, Alexander Sirsky. Fourth, we assess that Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing more unrest outside the Kremlin with the Russian information space questioning Russia's overall military readiness. Fifth, We assess Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu is reaching a point where his continued leadership of the Russian Federation Armed Forces is at risk, and that it will be politically difficult to blame Army General Sergei Sorovykin, Commander-in-Chief of the Russian Aerospace Forces, for failing to defend Russian airbases. Sixth, we assess that Army General Sorovykin, also the commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine, will increase operational tempo at all costs, to create a political victory on the battlefield before December 31st. Seventh, we maintain that the risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction is possible. Eighth, we assess that Russia is conducting stealth mobilization and is likely preparing for the second wave of partial mobilization in January 2023. Ninth, We maintain the slowdown in combat operations on multiple axes is coming to an end, with improved ground conditions enabling armored vehicles to engage in fighting again. Tenth, we maintain that neither belligerent will institute a winter pause. Eleventh, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. Twelfth, We maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin to be combat effective due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. 13. We maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. And finally, 
We maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine has diminished, but remains a possibility in the next 35 to 65 days. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. Along the Kharkiv-Luhansk administrative border, fighting on the P-7 highway ground line of communication, called a GLOC, that's a supply line, continued in Novoselivske. The Russian Ministry of Defense reported two Ukrainian reconnaissance units entered Raikhorotka, engaged with Russian troops, and returned to their defensive positions. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported fighting in Ploshanka, with no change in the situation. Russian sources reported continued fighting in Chervonopopivka, while the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported only artillery strikes. Mercenaries with Wargonzo reported that Russian forces, supported by the Bar's 13 Russia Legion, not to be confused with the terrorist organization the Russian Imperial Movement, were able to improve their positions. Semyon Pegov is still in the region, but didn't release any other content beyond the fake fighting video we discussed in yesterday's episode. Russian sources reported continued fighting in Zhitlivka and claimed that Ukrainian forces are almost to the P-7 highway G-lock. Russian forces in Kremina were complaining on social media that supplies were becoming an issue due to the Ukrainian advance and establishment of fire control on the G-lock between Svatova and Kremina. Serhi Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Russian forces were withdrawing troops and equipment from Svatova due to the constant shelling on the town. Some assessment here. Ukraine appears to be applying similar tactics as were used to liberate Lehman. Smaller forces engaging in positional battles, DRG units, ambushes, and supply interdiction to chip away at Russian defensive lines southwest and north of Kremina. We maintain that Ukrainian forces will not attack Kremina head-on, but will work to create a technical encirclement and force a withdrawal. If Ukraine captures Zhitlivka, the terrain to the east is somewhat similar to the so-called Sherwood Forest west of Izium and favors their training, equipment, and tactics. Positional fighting continued east of Milohorivka, the one in Luhansk, Governor Haidai reported there are still six elderly residents in the town, and they are trying to convince them to evacuate. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR-JCCC, shared pictures of the aftermath of the December 4th HIMARS strikes on Alchevsk. Ukrainian forces fired on Vrubivka, south of Lysychansk, using grad rockets fired from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. In northeast Donetsk, the GSAFU reported private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, attempted to advance on Verknokomyanskia and was unsuccessful. The terrain enables Ukrainian forces to maintain fire control west of the Verknokomyanka oil refinery, making any Russian advance on the logistics and supply node in Siversk extremely challenging. Ukrainian positions in Spirna were shelled and hit by airstrikes, indicating that the settlement remains contested. Fighting continued in Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, with PMC Wagner reportedly making marginal gains by deploying an understaffed company of mercenaries on Ukrainian positions. The heaviest fighting in Ukraine yesterday was on the eastern edge of Yakovlivka, as PMC Wagner continued attempts to reach the T-1302 highway. 
the situation is difficult for Ukrainian forces. Fighting was also reported on the eastern edge of Solidar, with no change in the situation. PMC Wagner continues to push penal units into the no-man's land that straddles the E-40 highway east of Bakhmut and in Opitne. Losses are high for both belligerents, with Russian Mobics reportedly dying from, quote, falling asleep and not waking up, end quote, according to death certificates, indicating that hypothermia is starting to cause casualties. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled an attack on Avdiivka and Kurdyumivka. A recent geolocated video showed Ukrainian forces in defensive positions in the northeast corner of Mayorsk, just outside the train station. Based on this information, we adjusted the line of conflict south and east and considered the settlement contested. In southwest Donetsk, it's unclear if the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, entered an operational pause or if there was a reduction in combat reports due to the missile strikes across Ukraine. There was little fighting reported across the region. There was no fighting reported in Avdiivka or any of the surrounding areas. Skirmishes between Ukrainian and Russian troops likely continued. The GSAFU reported that an attempt by the 1st Army Corps of the DNR to advance on Krasnohorivka was thwarted, while mercenaries with Rybar reported continued fighting in Marinka. The attempt to break Ukrainian defenses in Marinka may be reaching a culmination point, with Russian millbloggers providing less coverage after issuing glum assessments last week. The Russian MOD claimed that Ukrainian forces attempted to advance deeper into Mikhilsky and were unsuccessful. The People's Militia of the DNR Telegram channel released their 5 o'clock follies, claiming they destroyed one main battle tank, two radar stations, one S-300 anti-aircraft launcher, and eight units of, quote, armored and automotive vehicles. There was no evidence. Obviously, there was no evidence. They also released a dubious video of artillery at work. We do, of course, link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Ukrainian forces executed 171 fire missions on the occupied territories, while Russian artillery strikes were lighter than normal. The western and central districts of the city of Donetsk were heavily shelled again. In Mariupol, occupation forces were searching for Russian Mobik deserters who walked off from the training grounds outside the city. The AWOL Russian conscripts reportedly took their weapons with them. Insurgents in the city reported that two Russian S-300 air defense launchers were destroyed in the first strike on Russian positions in the area since May. Russian troops were observed relocating the surviving air defense batteries around the city on December 5th. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was mutual shelling by both belligerents across the Dnipro, but much lighter than over the weekend. Russian forces conducted 17 fire missions on the free Ukraine territories west of the Dnipro River. Russian positions in Holopristan were shelled, causing a large fire. Ukrainian officials said they were starting to get the upper hand on the artillery duel across the Dnipro and establishing fire control over Russian positions. Russian forces continued looting Olkhine, indicating they may be preparing to withdraw some forces from the area. There was no change in the operational situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. 
The Kremlin appears to have torpedoed ongoing talks to establish a green zone around ZNPP. Maria Zakharova, the official representative of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia, said Russia would not give up control over the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, claiming, quote, There can be no question of removing the ZNPP from Russian control or handing control over to some third party. The power plant is located in Russian territory and is fully managed by Russia. End quote. She also said that there had been no progress on reaching a deal to demilitarize the ZNPP, despite recent reports by Rafael Grossi, Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, that a deal between Moscow and Kyiv was close. What? We're so surprised. Okay, no, no, we're not surprised. This is, this is basically exactly what we thought would happen. A suburb of Zaporizhia was hit by S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack, damaging, quote, critical infrastructure and several homes. There was only sporadic artillery and tank fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Juliapola, to Orekhiv, to Mali Shirbaki. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, the Kerch Strait ferry crossings are cancelled through December 6th due to poor weather, as is traffic across the newly opened section of the Kerch Bridge. The ferry crossing has been closed for four of the last five days, creating a massive backup of military and civilian traffic. Russian forces shelled the Niprovska Gulf near Ochakiv, with no damage reported to the town. I'm beginning to think that they have something against Black Sea salmon. Or wildlife in general. I mean, first they take a raccoon as a prisoner of war, and now they're shelling the salmon? It's weird military strategy. In western and central Ukraine, in Dnipropetrovsk, Russian forces fired over 50 artillery shells into Nikopol, Chervonohryorivka, and Marchanets. The worst damage was in Chervonohryorivka, where water service was knocked out to 9,000 homes. The ArcelorMittal factory in Krividi was hit by up to three S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack. There was a fire and at least one person was killed and three wounded. Ukrainian officials maintained operational security and did not share any further information. In north and northeast Ukraine, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the Romadas of Krasnopilia, Bilopilia, Miropilia, and Shalekhin were attacked by Russian forces from across the international border. In Bilopilia, a boarding school for psychoneurological disorders was shelled. The Glinsk Hermitage was hit by 15 grad rockets fired by MLRS, causing significant damage to the monastery and killing livestock. Moving on to the Russian front, the Ukrainian armed forces attacked the Kursk airport using a drone, destroying the fuel storage tanks. This was the third confirmed attack on a Russian airbase on December 5th. The fire was still burning in the morning. The Russian MOD confirmed that Engels Air Base, 710 kilometers east of Kharkiv, was hit by a drone. Russian state media outlet Russia Today reported four Tu-95 bombers were damaged, which aligns with a report made by the mercenaries with Rybar in the early morning hours. Pictures from Diaghilevo Air Base showed a Tu-22M3 bomber received significant damage, with a truck destroyed and three pilots killed. The homage to the pilots on the Russian MOD Telegram channel countered the Kremlin talking points that three ground crew workers were killed. 
The number of wounded is reported to be between 4 and 11. The Kremlin maintains that two Tu-95 bombers were, quote, lightly damaged and three ground crew members were killed, defying other information and available pictures from Diaghilevo that have been geolocated and weather-confirmed. Bielgorod Oblast leaders rejected an offer by PMC Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin to build a line of defensive structures on the Ukrainian border, due to his request for, quote, several billion rubles, to support the project. Prigozhin also accused business leaders of being unsupportive of his militia training program and not giving workers paid time off to participate. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Hey, fun fact, it's been zero days since someone at the Kremlin threatened nuclear war. Sergei Lavrov, who was not exiled from microphones long enough, said, quote, Given the Western efforts on deterring Russia, a serious threat comes from the USA and NATO towards real military confrontation with us. It is obvious that this threatens to be a direct collision of nuclear states with catastrophic consequences. End quote. In what was almost certainly a planned attack, Russia fired 70 cruise missiles into Ukraine, including KH-101, KH-555, and KH-59, from Tu-95 aircraft out of Engels Air Base, and 22-caliber cruise missiles from vessels in the Black Sea. Ukrainian air defenses successfully intercepted 60 missiles, achieving an 86% interception rate. A video of a German-provided Gepard anti-aircraft system downing a Russian cruise missile was released. We do, of course, link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. It's pretty cool. You can't actually see the cruise missile until it's struck by the anti-aircraft system. Ten missiles were launched toward Kyiv with nine shot down. The one missile hit an energy facility, causing blackouts in half of the capital. Odessa was left without water and electricity briefly, But less than 24 hours later, water and heat had been restored, trains were running, and electrical service had returned to half of the city. The water service was knocked out in Kropivnitsky, but was also in the process of being restored at the time of recording. Okay, seriously, do they teach workshops? The hardest-hit city was Zhitomir, which was still in the dark. Only three oblasts, Kyiv, Dnipropetrovsk, and Donetsk, were expected to experience continued emergency power shutdowns today. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed that a Russian cruise missile missed the airbase near Poltava and caused a fire in a wooded area. It's unclear if an incoming missile was destroyed and debris crashed in the area, or if the incoming missile failed. Four people were killed in the attacks. A rocket booster landed in Brachan, Moldova, on the Ukrainian border in a forested area. There was no damage, injuries, or explosion. Our team identified it as a booster section from an S-300 anti-aircraft missile, indicating it likely came from Ukraine. Oleksiy Danilov, the secretary of the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine, has stated that the missile that fell on Moldova's territory during the 5th of December attack was Russian, not Ukrainian. 
Unrelated to the missile strike, power was knocked out in parts of Moldova. Analysis of missile debris from the November 23rd strikes on Ukraine showed that some of the missiles used by Russia were built in the fourth quarter of 2022, based on their serial numbers. Militaries use their oldest munitions first, and the use of missiles built after October 1st for a November 23rd strike indicates that Russia is dealing with significant supply chain issues. Okay, assessment time. This was a good day for Ukraine. Their air defenses did an admirable job of protecting civilian infrastructure while striking more than a strategic blow at the Kremlin. Ukraine sent a message that they could strike targets deep inside Russia while defending their airspace. The follow-on strike at Kursk shows that this wasn't a one-and-done with a couple of wonder weapons. By developing a long-range strike capability, Ukraine has increased its bargaining power for when, someday, the two nations sit down at the negotiating table. The number of Ukrainian embassies that have received threatening letters with animal eyeballs in them grew to 21 in 12 countries. Investigators in Spain intercepted three packages at the post office addressed to the Ukrainian embassy in Madrid, the consulate general in Barcelona, and the consulate in Malaga. The Ukrainian Special Operation Forces Unit Angels rescued two naval infantry officers from behind enemy lines in Zaporizhia. French President Emmanuel Macron said that Russia was willing to negotiate peace after talking to Russian President Putin on the phone, but the Kremlin wanted security guarantees from Ukraine. Alexei Danilov, Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, responded by writing on Facebook that Russia already has security guarantees because there is no death penalty at The Hague. I mean, that's a fair point. Later, Ukraine said it would be willing to negotiate with Russia if the nation was willing to give up its arsenal of nuclear weapons. Video from Belarus showed partisans blowing up train tracks to slow the flow of Russian troops and materials into the nation that borders Ukraine. Lithuania announced it was sending 155mm artillery to Ukraine. Additionally, Lithuanian military engineers completed repairs on two German PHZ-2000 155mm self-propelled howitzers and were sending them back to service in Ukraine. The United States is sending four Avenger air defense systems to Ukraine. The short-range anti-aircraft system carries four Stinger ground-to-air missiles, an M3P 50-caliber machine gun, and an infrared and laser rangefinder. Speaking of sending things back to service, let's talk about Russian mobilization. During a video conference meeting, Russian President Putin reportedly tore into Army General Sergei Sorovikin, commander-in-chief of the Russian Aerospace Forces and commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, Putin was furious over the drone strikes on Russian airbases, the lack of readiness, and the lack of air defense response. He reportedly told Sorovyakin if there was another, quote, PR f**k-up, similar to December 5th, there would be, quote, grave consequences. Sorovyakin has commanded the forces in Ukraine longer than any other general assigned to the task, so it's probably time to start a Deadpool. We had correctly assessed in yesterday's episode that the blame for the failure lay with Sorovyakin. United States intelligence reported that President Putin is surprised by the results of the special military operation so far and doesn't understand why more hasn't been accomplished. Keep listening. 
You'll end up with some insight on the type of intel being shared with the Kremlin. Hey, guess who's back on Telegram? Our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, Kremlin pariah, and former Mobik, Igor Gherkin Strelkov. In a series of posts on his Telegram channel, he announced he was back in Moscow after being lied to by Russian military officials. Strelkov was only permitted to enlist as a private in the infantry, as we had previously assessed when he announced he was mobilizing in October. Military officials only listed him attached to a unit in the 1st Army Corps of the DNR for a single day, and then removed him from the unit records. Strelkov was never told, and continued to work his network to fundraise and get equipment for the DNR while fighting as a, quote, illegal combatant. He learned about the situation, and because of the legal implications, he asked to be released. Because the DNR had no record of him being mobilized in the first place, he was allowed to turn in his weapon and go home to Moscow. While this was likely politically motivated, Strelkov's experience has mirrored many reports from Russian military volunteers and Mobics. We look forward to lengthy doom posting from our favorite convicted war criminal. Ukrainian officials report that as the number of captured Mobics and members of penal units increases, more are requesting not to be included in future prisoner exchanges. Some PMC Wagner members are afraid they'll receive a sledgehammer retirement plan for being captured, and some Mobics fear they will be prosecuted under Russia's no-surrender law. The Kremlin has told Russian employers they need to provide local commissariats a list of all employees eligible for military service to improve tracking of conscripts. While the database will include all potential conscripts, people with exemptions due to being students, in a critical job role, or for having health reasons will be flagged. Or so the Kremlin says. Moscow wants the new tracking system in place by February 2023. Quick assessment? Unless we're totally misreading the vibes here, this strongly indicates that Russia is planning additional mobilization waves in the winter of 2023. Why wait? In occupied Donetsk, male residents in Makievka waiting in line for drinking water were handed a summons for military service by the commissariat. In Russian-occupied Crimea, mobilization is still ongoing because the region didn't meet its goals set on September 21st. To demonstrate the great victory of the repairs of the Kerch Bridge, which the Russian Ministry of Transportation claimed was already open in late November, Russian President Putin drove across the new bridge section on December 5th. The bridge is still closed to all truck traffic, and work is still ongoing. The Russian proletariat wasn't impressed with Putin's borderline My Pet Goat moment. The Russian leader was criticized for driving a Mercedes and not a Russian-branded vehicle for the photo opportunity. Responding to critics, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told Russian state media agency TASS, quote, that kind of car was available on the spot, and Putin didn't want to use, quote, extra cars. Quick sidebar, my pet goat moment refers to social criticism received by then-U.S. President George W. Bush for clips showing him reading The Pet Goat to second graders when he was informed by staff that the World Trade Center had been hit. There's more to it, but ultimately the moment was recycled as an anti-Bush meme for many years. Yevgeny Silkin, assistant commander of the Joint Forces of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, reported that Russia has stopped launching Iranian Shahed-136 kamikaze drones not because of supply issues, but a design flaw that makes them inoperable in cold weather. 
Ukrainian officials claim that the plastics used in the drone's construction become brittle in cold temperatures. We had previously assessed that initial reports indicated Russia took delivery of approximately 400 drones in the summer and had consumed the supply. A drunk Russian Mobik accosted a teenage girl in a Melitopol grocery store, asking her for sex and offering her 5,000 rubles. The girl and employees in the store were afraid to respond because the Mobik was armed. Other members of the unit arrived and dragged him out of the store. Mobiks shot a video of themselves near the front lines, drunk from vodka, laughing, and having a good time, because that's how you should roll when a mortar shell could land on your head at any moment. Who needs situational awareness? The Russian officer corps has been completely destroyed, and they don't have an NCO program to create strong enlisted leaders in the field, fomenting a lack of discipline. Russian intelligence officers have a problem. Every day, the picture reports from the front claim that hundreds of Ukrainians were killed, and yet on the next day, hundreds of Ukrainians are still fighting in the same place. Our analyst team, Russian mill bloggers, and some within the Kremlin have called out the logical answer to this problem. The picture reports are fake. But no, that's not the answer, according to Russian intelligence. It's clones. The answer is clones. This is proof that Ukraine is cloning drug-fueled super soldiers because there's no other way to explain it in Russian Mir. And if you think I'm being a little over the top right now, no, we link to the story from the Russian state media agency RIA Novosti in our full situation report on Patreon. Check it out. We have the receipts. We, we always keep the receipts. Last week, President Putin met with 18 women who were allegedly mothers and wives of Mobiks in Ukraine. As we previously reported, the attendees were hand-picked supporters and employees of the Kremlin. But it gets worse. Eleven women invited to the meeting work in budgetary organizations or are leaders in pro-government social media movements. Two had exactly zero family members deployed to Ukraine. Dmitry Olegovich, codenamed Sarmat, was the former chairman of the Military Industrial Commission in Russia. In simpler terms, he was responsible for procuring equipment for the Russian military. Well, he's fighting in Ukraine now and shared a picture on social media. That has turned into a disaster. PMC Wagner Telegram channels pounced on the fact that he was wearing a Corinthia jacket, Turkish body armor, magazines for a German MP5 submachine gun, and magazines for a Belgian FN SCAR 308 caliber machine gun indicating he wasn't using an AKM or AK-12. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is graphic detail in today's report. And if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. The Rusik Group an ultranationalist organization in Russia, released graphic pictures of extrajudicial executions of civilians in Luhansk. Civilians accused of aiding Ukrainian forces were beaten, stabbed, shot, and in one case, castrated while alive before being hanged. The victims were only raised a few inches off the ground to prolong their suffering, gasping for breath for up to 20 minutes. The signs say, quote, I have helped the enemy, and quote, traitor of the Luhansk people, 
The pictures circulated rapidly within Russian social media, with many saying the pictures were fake or acts committed by Ukrainians to blame Russians. The Rusik group doubled down against these claims, stating, quote, could be done by ours. What prevents you from hanging servants and informers? Normal practice during times of war, end quote. Okay, next story. Britain Sean Pinner, who was sentenced to death by a DNR kangaroo court in June, has returned to Ukraine 10 weeks after his release in a prisoner of war swap on September 21st. Pinner promised his mother he would not return to the front, but wanted to be with his wife Larissa at home in Ukraine. Pinner reported that while he was in captivity, he was stabbed, beaten, starved, and received electrical shocks. In economic news, Russian President Putin had a really bad day yesterday. On the first day of the European Union and G7 nation ban on insurance and servicing of transit of Russian oil sold at prices over $60 a barrel, Turkey is blocking 20 tankers with Russian cargo from entering the Bosporus Strait. The ships cannot depart the Black Sea until they can confirm their cargo is insured in alignment with the new sanctions. Turkey's interest goes beyond enforcing the price cap and comes from a genuine concern that the financial resources would be in place if there were an oil spill or accident on the strait. Russia had assembled a shadow fleet of up to 100 old oil tankers to skirt the regulations and likely didn't expect Turkey to enforce its control of the Bosporus Strait. Shipping from other Russian oil ports will be even more challenging due to sea ice in the winter months. The price cap on Russian oil was done to help stabilize oil prices by limiting Moscow's ability to manipulate supply and to reduce the profits they make from oil sales. At $60 a barrel, Russia will struggle to break even. Moscow had threatened to suspend oil exports over the weekend, but as with previous threats from the Kremlin, nothing happened. Moldova announced it was diversifying the nations it purchases natural gas from to reduce its dependency on Russia. For December, Moldova purchased 5.7 million cubic meters of gas from the Russian state-controlled company Gazprom and another 3.5 million from other sources. The Russian ruble continues declining, falling to 63 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices are also in decline and would likely have hurt Russian oil profits even without the price cap. WTI crude is trading at $76 a barrel, while Brent fell to $82. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market plummeted to the lowest price of 2022, reaching $2.18 a gallon, or $0.58 a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures stabilized, trading at €135 per megawatt hour for January 2023 delivery and €136 for February. Chicago SRW wheat futures were also stable, trading at $7.40 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? 
Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.